It was the 1950s, and cultural and political events were exploding all over the world, events that continue to shape our world today. But Guidon had tunnel vision. It's as if he was on his own island like Tom Hanks and Castaway. These are the true adventures of Guidon Lev, Episode 7, The New Jew. Guidon didn't write anything about the movies or music of the era. He didn't mention Sputnik or the Korean War or color television. Oddly, for a person so immersed in the ideas of socialism, Guidon made no mention of Fidel Castro, J. Edgar Hoover, or the execution of the Rosenbergs, although he did mention McCarthyism obliquely. There were parents who heard that we were a socialist, Zionist movement, and they refused to let their son or daughter come to our Oneg Shabbat or camp. Even when we went to their homes and explained to the parents that we teach the kids to help each other, to share, to treat the girls in the group as equals, to be fair, to work together rather than compete, when they heard the word socialism, that made us pink or red or whatever. This was a very trying period for us. One week, I would have 10 kids show up for an activity. The next week, only five would come. It was very difficult. It felt as if we were under siege. And in a way, we were. Sometimes the parents even refused to see or speak to me. An atmosphere of fear prevailed. This was a difficult time. Strange. Ten years went by. Gidon had started school, dropped out of school, moved out of the house, and worked at odd jobs. He hiked, he camped, he sang and danced, and he wholeheartedly embraced the ideology of socialist Zionism. He spent a year in Chicago helping to rebuild the youth group community, which had slowly petered out. He spent a year on a kibbutz in upstate New Jersey. He attended a four-month-long animal husbandry course at Rutgers University. He was very busy, it seemed to me, doing everything but having any kind of personal life. No, but seriously, I don't get it, I told Guidon, continuing a discussion we'd been having for several days. All you wrote about during your time in Canada was Hashomer Hatzair. What about sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Guidon looked at me blankly. I was thinking in American cultural terms again. It was the early 1950s. What about James Dean or Elvis? What about Teenage Rebellion? I peppered Gidon with questions. Didn't you have friends who weren't in Hashomer Hatzair? What about in school? No. Why? I mean, he got candy after school, right? Was it because what he had seen was so terrible that he grew up too fast? Was he shy? Did he see the other students as silly or naive? No. I was thoroughly confused. Why didn't Guidon write anything of a personal nature about the decade between arriving in Toronto and his immigration to Israel in 1959? He wrote pages and pages about the activities and doctrine of Hashomer Hatzair, about the folk dancing, about camping, about training farms and animal husbandry. But honestly, didn't he have a girlfriend? Guidon gave me a leather notebook, a kind of album of memories from the period. In it, I was able to find some clues. 
On a piece of paper written in English in tiny writing with a fountain pen is a poem titled Prophet Peter. It's a hilarious ode to Gidon. His mission was upon the earth to make God's children neater. And so, happy birthday, Gidon, dear, and courage in your fight. Believe me, though we all are slobs, at least we know, you're right. <laughs> Gidon's friend referred to him by both his birth name, Peter, and his new name, Gidon. He didn't remember exactly when, but it was at some point during his time in Canada that Gidon changed his name from the most decidedly un-Jewish Peter, given to him by his secular family, who identified with their surrounding Czech culture, to Gidon, a name from the Hebrew Bible. This name-changing thing was common practice in Israel in the aftermath of the Holocaust and in the early stages of building a new country. It helped to create a new, distinctly Jewish-Israeli identity. David Ben-Gurion, for example, was formerly David Grun. Golda Meyerson became Golda Meir. In Gidon's scrapbook, there were postcards that Gidon sent his mother and obtained after her death from his counselor training experiences for Hashomer Hatzair in Chicago and in Liberty, New York. There was a short note from Mrs. Beckham, his teacher at Grace Street Public School, dated 1950, in which she wished him luck at the end of the school year. There were a couple of notes dated 1948 from friends and Carlo Vivari saying goodbye, I presumed. They were in check and I could not make them out. There was a note from someone named Tom Simon that said, Roses are red, violets are blue, someone stinks, maybe it's you. There was another, quote, Dear Peter and Eater, I have just one saying, when you get married and have twins, don't come to me for pins, end quote. Among the papers was a memorial pamphlet about another young member of Hashomer Hatzair, Yoel, who died unexpectedly in 1955 at the age of 18. Someone named Eugene eulogized him. Quote, People who do not know Hashomer Hatzair insist that in the kibbutz society, personalities are lost. How far from the truth this is. Was there anyone who had not encountered Yoel's unique character? If I ever needed the kindness of your voice and the comfort of your presence, Yoel, I need them now. I know you would put your arm on my shoulder and speak gently, quietly. And you would not talk of misery and death, but of life and creation, end quote. I asked Gidon if anyone in Hashemir Hatzayir knew that he was a Holocaust survivor. One or two, he said, but it wasn't talked about. Did anyone at school know? He shook his head. The memorial pamphlet was neatly typed, and the cover was well-designed with a photo of Yoel. So it was odd that the back page looked to be a fragment of something else. Quote, one May day in 1948, in the middle of the burning battle, a state was declared, the State of Israel. The new state is weak, but full of strong ideals. Days go by quickly, much has been done. The sands of the Negev have become fruitful. The swamps of the Galil have been drained, but the awakening of the land is still coming. On Mount Carmel, a mount from biblical times, a new structure grows up, a school for progress and knowledge. On a hot day, a caravan passes the fields not far from Haifa, and from the caravan emerge Sabras, 
dressed in traditional working clothes. They arise and build a new land, and thus is built the new kibbutz Hakorshim. The members of the new kibbutz are faithful to the ideals of the new land. The land builds itself, but there are many difficulties in the development of a new country. The Arab is still a second-class citizen without rights in his own land. On the credit side, much has been done. An Arab youth movement has been established to go hand-in-hand hand with the progressive Jews. Eight Arabs have already been seated in the Knesset. There are people today who look at Israel as a reformist party, in coalition with reactionaries who oppress the Arab minority. This is a misconception. Governments come and go, but the true essence of Israel lies in the Jewish farmer, the Arab worker, the immigrant, in the Jewish worker. This is the main factor of Israel. We, the progressive Jews in America, greet the people of Israel. There it cut off. I got the picture, though. This was the mantra and vision. This is what Gidon and his Hashemir Hatzair friends thought about morning, noon, and night. Joseph Trumpledore, one of the early icons of the labor Zionist movement, described a Jewish pioneer. Quote, what is a pioneer? Is he a worker only? No. The definition includes much more. The pioneers should be workers, but that is not all. We shall need people who will be everything, everything that the land of Israel needs. A worker has his labor interest, a soldier his esprit de corps, a doctor and an engineer their special inclinations, a generation of iron men, iron from which you can forge everything that national machinery needs. You need a wheel? Here I am. A nail, a screw, a block? Here, take me. You need a man to till the soil? I'm ready. A soldier? I'm here. Policeman, doctor, lawyer, artist, teacher, water carrier? Here I am. I have no form. I have no psychology. I have no personal feeling, no name. I am a servant of Zion, ready to do everything, not bound to do anything. I have only one aim, creation, end quote. Was Gidon only a nail, a screw, or a block? Or was he a true believer to the extent that he didn't have much of a personal life outside of Hashomer Hatzair? Gidon had been thoroughly indoctrinated. He recognized that now, and he was painfully aware of other opportunities that he missed along the way. I went during the summer months to Hashomer Hatzair camp, where for three or four weeks we would live together as a group developing a longing for Israel and communal living. That dream was not something I was prepared to give up. My working as an apprentice to be a motor mechanic demanded five full years of apprenticeship, including all the summer months, and without that, there was no chance to qualify and get a license. I had to give it up. I also started ballet dancing and loved it. But once again, I had to choose ballet or Hashomer Atzair. I also dreamed of learning tap dancing. Not having the cash for shoes or lessons, 
I took some old shoes of mine and nailed some metal tabs onto them. But who would teach me? I loved Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, so I just tried on my own. Gidon has six grown children, two daughters and four sons. In each of his sons, Gidon sees an aspect of himself that he might have been, had things gone differently. One son with a PhD in neurobiology, Gidon sees as the intellectual, more sophisticated self he might have been had he studied at university. In another son, Gidon sees the confident, athletic, outgoing person he might have been had he been taller and more handsome. In another, he sees the dancer, choreographer, and artist that he had in his soul, but didn't have the chance to nourish. In the other, his eldest, he sees a wise, playful, grounded father. Of Gidon's two daughters, one is a reassuring yoga teacher and therapist, and the other an assertive, expressive architect. These are all aspects of Gidon that would have, should have, could have been, as Gidon puts it. Today, Gidon's eldest son, Yanai, lives on one of Israel's most storied and successful kibbutzim, Kibbutz Mishmar HaEmek, in the Jezreel Valley. In fact, Yanai and his wife raised all four of their children there. Mishmar HaEmek boasts a large, newly renovated dining hall, a beautiful pool and recreation center, an auditorium, and about 1,250 residents. It is one of the few kibbutzim in Israel that has not yet been privatized. It's the real deal, in other words. For years, the work of Mishmar HaEmek was agricultural. Now, they produce the future. Plastics. Six Knesset members have hailed from Mishmar HaEmek, although in Israel, just about every kibbutz, regardless of whether it ultimately lasted, is storied and boasts influential alumni. Ask almost any Israeli, and chances are that they have or have had family members connected to a kibbutz at some time, in some way. Kibbutz, the very concept, is the ideological center of the many-spoked wheels of Zionism. I'm embarrassed to admit that until I lived in Israel, I'd always imagined the kibbutz as a kind of hippie Israeli commune where Jewish kids in the 70s and 80s went to get in touch with their roots by learning folk dances and picking fruit. Um... Not exactly. A kibbutz is defined as a community, usually a village, based on a high level of social and economic sharing, equality, direct democracy, and tight social relations. Zionists weren't the only ones committed to new utopian ideals of socialism and communal living. Dozens of other similar communities came into existence all over the world with varying versions of socialist ideology, ranging from religious to political to anarchism. But in Israel, the kibbutz was the cornerstone of the new state. In 1927, the United Kibbutz Movement was formed, helping in both pragmatic and organizational ways kibbutzniks achieve their goals. While the kibbutz movement was instrumental in serving as a mechanism for state-building in Israel, ideologies still differed. The majority of kibbutzim were secular and, depending on the founding members, emphasized various aspects of not just Zionism and socialism, 
but also of communal sharing and living. Despite these differences, or maybe because of them, a new identity and culture were being born, that of the Israeli. The value of hard work, communal living, and resolute unity in the face of challenges deeply informs Israeli culture and society to this day. The first kibbutz in Israel, Deganya, was founded in 1909, near the southern end of Lake Kinneret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. The land was purchased with the help of the Jewish National Fund, and the first kibbutzniks were mainly from Eastern Europe. These were to be the new Jews, hale, hardy, strong, agrarian. Kibbutzniks would go back to their roots, to their connection to the land. They would upend what Zionist Ber Borokov called the class pyramid, created when restrictions against Jews from owning land in Europe left a paucity of Jews with the skills of workers and farmers needed to build a new country the base of the pyramid. Rather, Jews had portable skills like those of doctors, accountants, lawyers, or other professionals, the top of the pyramid. To build a new country, this had to be changed. More farmers, less accountants. There was a painfully steep learning curve for the early kibbutzniks. Animal husbandry, agriculture, self-governance, and collective living were not skills acquired overnight. All means of production were communally owned, combines, tractors, fields, orchards, and workshops. All services were communally seen to. The kitchen, laundry, washrooms, and even care and education of the children. One of the most controversial aspects of kibbutz life was the children's house, where the children slept at night and where they were watched over and educated by other kibbutz members during the day, so that the kibbutz could be as productive as possible for both genders. The children spent time with their parents in the afternoon and evening, having dinner and playing games for two or three hours before retiring back to the children's house. Kibbutz children lived in this way from birth onward. This continued through the 1970s when kibbutzniks began to shift away from this level of collective living and wanted to have their children sleeping at home with them. In 1957, Gidon spent a year in Heightstown, New Jersey, where Hashomer Hatzair had the only training farm in North America. The aim was to send the graduates to a kibbutz in northern Israel, called Kibbutz Hazorea. It had been founded about 20 years earlier in 1936 and was struggling, and it needed an influx of young, trained, committed kibbutzniks. It was time to put into practice all the ideas Gidon had studied for so long. We owned and ran a commercially viable farm in Heightstown. It was quite revolutionary. We learned everything from milking cows, plowing fields, raising chickens from start to finish, pruning apple trees, and just living together, cooking, shopping, even ironing our clothes. Everything involved in running an efficient enterprise. It was a kibbutz in a miniature form. It was like living in another world. We were short on manpower, refusing to hire pickers for ideological reasons. So every weekend, groups from our nearby branches in New York helped pick the apples in the orchards. After the apple picking season concluded, I was assigned to the refet, the cow barn. This was a world that I knew very little about. I took out some books from our library and started to learn. 
Besides the practical parts of working in the barn and learning everything, from milking the cows, feeding the calves, and even helping the cows at calfing time, I loved it, though it was very hard work. By the end of the year, we were all looking forward to starting our new lives on kibbutz in Israel. We packed, we went for medical checkups, saw the dentist, and visited friends and family. In November of 1959, I got on the boat, the SS Zion, an Israeli vessel of the Tzim line, and sailed to the promised land. My mother and even youth, my stepfather and my cousin John and family came to the port to see me off. It was really very moving, especially for me. Once more, I was passing the Statue of Liberty, this time on an Israeli ship and sailing eastward, 11 years after I had landed on these very shores. The true adventures of Gidon Lev were only just getting off the ground. Gidon was headed to another world, he had learned much about Israel, but he could not have imagined life in the actual Middle East. Mostly when we think of the Middle East, we imagine the sandy landscapes of the Saudi Kingdom, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, or Iraq. In political and economic circles, the Middle East is often referred to more broadly to include North Africa, using the acronym MENA, Middle East, North Africa. Israel is in what used to be called the Levant, a slightly archaic term that means rising. The Levant is made up of the eastern Mediterranean countries of Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And here there are some seriously deep roots and history in almost every epoch. The Stone, Bronze, and Iron Ages, and the Roman, Byzantine, Early Muslim, Crusader, Mamluk, and Ottoman periods. Then came the British Mandate and Israel's War of Independence in 1948. But Gidon was not thinking in terms of epics. He was thinking in terms of the excitement of starting a new life. The ship, the SS Zion, was packed with immigrants to Israel mostly, but not only. We were young, energetic, enthusiastic youth. We danced, we sang, we discussed everything and anything from free love to equality to utopia to socialism versus democracy. It was sort of free for all. This was the brave new world. We were going to, as the saying goes, to build and be rebuilt. It was the voyage of our lifetime. After a brief stop in Naples, we got off the boat for a few hours and a few prostitutes tried to proposition us guys with not much luck. Not much luck? I asked Gidon with a slightly embarrassed laugh. I wasn't sure I wanted him to expand on this. We were scared of them, honestly. I imagined this group of nerdy, soon-to-be kibbutzniks fresh off the boat with dreams of helping to build a new country, faced with several Sophia Loren lookalikes down on the docks trying to hustle some business. What did they say? <laughs> oh, you know, come here. We'll do this. We'll show you that. The ship that Gidon and his friends sailed on, the SS Zion, was built in Germany in 1956. 
and given to Israel as part of reparations paid by West Germany to Israel. Negotiations for reparations from Germany to compensate for Jewish material losses totaled about 1.5 billion U.S. dollars in 1952, which is something like 14 billion dollars today. The subject of reparations was hotly debated in Israel, with many feeling that to accept repayment from Germany would demonstrate, in a way, a willingness to forgive the Nazis for what they had done. Most of the reparations paid to Israel over 14 years were plowed into Israel's infrastructure and economy, equipment, factories, and ships. Israel needed this economic injection to get its new country on its feet. Despite those funds, intense debate about the relatively small payments that Holocaust survivors received personally remains. Today, Gidon receives about $650 per month from the German government. In Israel, the three largest cities are Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa, the latter of which is a major port in the north. Built on the rolling Carmel Mountains, Haifa sits about 90 miles from the Lebanese border as the crow flies. Haifa is where most passenger ships arrive in Israel. The other more southerly ports are more industrial in nature. Not that Haifa is not also a busy industrial port with towering cranes and stacked cargo containers. In November 1959, the SS Zion docked in Haifa with Gidon Lev on board. At the port of Haifa, everybody was up on deck. And we were so excited, pointing out the mountains of the Galilee in the distance. I couldn't really see them. I felt so overwhelmed by just getting there. The idea of finally arriving after something like 10 years at a place that you've been talking about, learning about, singing and dancing about. And then it becomes a reality. The most surprising thing was the crowds of people waiting and waving at us. Once we got off the ship, somebody came up to us and asked us if we were the group going to Hazorea. And we said, yes, 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 we are. We are the group, yes. A truck pulled up, not a big one, and we all got our things and piled into the back, sitting on benches in the truck bed. It's only about 14 miles inland from Haifa to Kibbutz Hazorea, so the ride must have taken about half an hour. What a journey that must have been for Gidon. We travel to this part of Israel quite a lot, Gidon and I, since he has such history in the northern part of the country. He frequently remarks on how different things were today than they were then. This whole road is new, says Gidon, gesturing broadly in the general direction we're heading. It was nothing like this. When I first arrived. Over two million years ago, the broad, fertile Jezreel Valley, also known as Emek Israel, was connected to the Mediterranean Sea. That is, until the Jordan Rift rose, closing the channel. The lowest point of the Jordan Rift Valley is the famous and slowly disappearing Dead Sea. As the word rift might suggest, two tectonic plates rub against each other here. The Golan Heights and all of Jordan are part of the Arabian Plate, while the Galilee, West Bank, Coastal Plain, and the Negev, along with the Sinai Peninsula, are on the African Plate. 
Eons ago, there was a massive earthquake in this region, and there will be again. This is convenient, perhaps, because Armageddon, or as we say in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, is located in the Jezreel Valley. Armageddon is the translated, differently pronounced version of the original name. Har means mountain. Megiddo is the name of the place itself, which is a rather amazing tell, which is something that looks like a hill but is really several layers of civilization built on top of one another over thousands of years. In 1457, before the Common Era, the army of Pharaoh Tutmose III and their thunderous chariots fought the Battle of Megiddo against the coalition of Canaanite vassal states in this now peaceful agricultural valley. It's hard to imagine such a chaotic scene in what looks very much to me like the Sacramento Valley in California. There are usually several archaeological digs happening all over the Jezreel Valley at any point in time. All over the country, I should say. You cannot walk 10 feet without tripping over a Canaanite jug. Or so it seems to me, not that I've ever found anything. In the biblical era, the Jezreel Valley was the lands of the Hebrew tribes of Manasseh, Zebulun, and Issachar. In fact, it is in this valley that the biblical story of Gideon played out. In this story, Gideon is a typical biblical hero of the time, an unwitting man who receives a message from an angel of the Lord, who reportedly said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. After asking the angel to prove that God said this, the angel demonstrates so by having fire shoot out of a rock and then by wetting and drying a fleece. Gideon takes up the task set before him to destroy a pagan shrine to Baal and destroy a Midianite village. I like this story of the biblical Gideon. There was something about Gidon that reminded me of him, but maybe even more so of Don Quixote, Mary, a bit kooky with great intentions, always headed toward adventure and sometimes tilting toward windmills. In November 1959, bouncing along in the back of a truck, 24-year-old Gidon was headed toward a challenging new adventure and the beginnings of a whole new life. I remember the intense feeling as we drove into the Jezreel Valley, which for years had been just a huge swamp and was now one of the most fertile valleys in the land of Israel, a sort of breadbasket for the entire country, providing fruits, vegetables, wheat, cotton, sunflower seeds, and the famous melons. It was a wide valley with mountains on the right and fields and the hills on the left and the tell right in front of us. We didn't know what a tell was yet. We found out only afterward. When we arrived at the entrance to the kibbutz, it felt like a dream come true. Gidon was part of the second attempt to revive kibbutz Hazorea with an influx of trained, motivated, excited new kibbutzniks. The first group a year earlier hadn't worked out so well. We were to boost the population at Hazorea and help to diversify the social and cultural fabric there. The founding members were from a German youth movement known as Werkleute and the Blauenweiss, rather than the much larger Hashomer Atzair movement. Most of the founding members were academics, some with degrees, and almost all with at least some university education. They truly knew very little about agriculture and manual labor, so that their first years in Israel and establishing a kibbutz were tough. It is almost a miracle that they managed to do it. 
When we arrived, we were on the whole warmly received, though with some skepticism, mainly because the group that had come from America the previous year turned out to be a very difficult lot. Some of the people in that first group were problematic individuals. It took us, the new arrivals, a while to change the mostly negative attitudes of the kibbutz members towards us, something that was not so easy to do. One of my favorite photos of Gidon was taken only months after he had arrived in Israel. He's on a tractor and he looks back toward the camera, confident, smiling. The sun shines on his face, his sleeves are rolled up, and he seems like the king of the world. Gidon had pulled a new, empowered identity over his shoulders like a protective, warm sweater. It was a perfect fit. No longer the malnourished boy in a concentration camp, or the shy, friendless immigrant in Brooklyn, or the delivery boy with numb fingers in Canada. The new Gidon was a sun-bronzed, muscular, important part of a hard-working kibbutz. At first, I worked with the grain elevators. I learned not only the various grain mixtures to prepare, for the cows, calves, chickens, pigs, and sheep, but also how to calculate the nutritional value of these mixtures and where and how to deliver them. I learned to drive a tractor with a grain delivery bin to back it up carefully, add exactly the right amount to each grain bin, and how to unload and stack hundreds of sacks of grains into sometimes 20-foot-high stacks so that they would not come crashing down on our heads. It was hard work, but I liked it. I also loved the Purim celebration. It was an almost all-night festival that involved the entire kibbutz. Weeks before the date, groups formed themselves, such as the orchard workers, the kitchen staff, the laundry group, the cowshed workers, and many more, each performing a skit based on the theme chosen that year. With music, costumes and lighting, the productions were creative, funny and entertaining. Of course, there was a lot of food and drinks as well. That did make us feel really happy and good. But life was not perfect. I did feel quite lonely at times. Gidon admitted. Being alone on the kibbutz, friendship and companionship were not that easily found. I remember being given a lift. A sort of large wooden box used as a cargo container for shipping with a roof on it, standing on six cinder blocks on a hill overlooking the Jezreel Valley. It was a fantastic view, but also very lonely. At night, little mice would come to visit me, and at times lizards too were my companions. In 1948, the new country of Israel had a huge challenge. Immigrants were arriving from all over the world, and most of them didn't speak Hebrew. Hebrew had been, heretofore, mainly the language of religious study, of liturgy, and of the Bible. It was a sacred language, and not one that most Jews spoke in the modern age. Instead, Yiddish, a delightful and mysterious combination of several languages, most notably Hebrew and German, was the most common language spoken among Jews living in the diaspora, 
i.e. Jews living outside of the region, which was the vast majority at that time. When the new state of Israel was founded, the question was what the official language would be, Yiddish or Hebrew. Some argued that Hebrew should remain the language of prayer and that Yiddish should be the language of Israel. Others argued that Yiddish was the language of exile and that Hebrew should be the new national language. Hebrew won out. The question then became one of what to do with all the immigrants who couldn't use the newly revived ancient language of the Jews. Intensive Hebrew learning programs were funded variously by municipalities, the Israeli Ministry of Education and Culture, and the Ministry of Immigrant Absorption. The Olpan program, as it was known, provided five months of Hebrew language lessons for new immigrants. This program still exists today. In fact, when I came to Israel in 2012, I enrolled in Olpan. Gidon readily learned Hebrew, not only because he already spoke three languages when he arrived in Israel, German, Czech, and English, but also because he has a knack for languages. Perhaps even more importantly, because absolutely nothing was going to slow him down. If Gidon had had to learn Latin too, he would have done so. Luckily, Azorea was running an Ulpan, a Hebrew studying program where young people came to learn Hebrew and work half a day on the kibbutz. Many were from America, but some were also from other countries around the world. And not all were Jewish. They were chiefly attracted by the idea of kibbutz living. I started teaching them Israeli folk dances and began to make some good friends. When the Ulpan group would go on trips to see the country, I usually joined them, and more often than not helped out in carrying supplies or climbing down steep cliffs such as the one above the Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, near Tiberias, where the remnants of the revolt against the Romans had holed up hewing deep caves, cisterns, storage caves, and hidden paths, steps. It was fascinating, and Mordechai Teltsu, the Ulpan teacher and guide, made it all very understandable. This particular trip was really special. Not only because of the difficulty of the climb itself, but we ended up on the shores of the lake and had a wonderful swim and picnic. I love these trips. Not only because of the friendships I made, but because I learned so much about this country of ours. Gidan was absorbing more than the geography, history, and culture of kibbutz life. He was adopting the spirit of the new Jew and the zeitgeist of the new Israel. To most Zionists at the time, religion had failed the Jews. Where was God during the Holocaust, they asked. A new attitude was needed, a spirit of nationalism, pride, cultural identity, and strength. The state, Chaim Weizmann, the first president of Israel, said in 1947, will not be given to the Jewish people on a silver platter. By 1959, the year Gidon departed for Israel, the Suez Canal crisis of 1956 had come and gone, setting the stage for further conflict between Israel and Egypt. David Ben-Gurion was the prime minister of the country. Four Russian-made Egyptian MiG-17 jets entered Israeli airspace only to be driven away, and Israel marked its first-ever official Holocaust Remembrance Day. If Gidon was nervous about any of these events or about what might occur in coming years, he hadn't written about it. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. 
If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Mock and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah El Iran for being the voice of young Gidon. And a very special thanks to Philip Herdwood.